Welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we are going to finish the book of Joshua today, um, which I hope you guys enjoyed finishing up as you read. And then we're going to dive into the book of Matthew as well. And so, uh, yeah. so We're we going to start- read lots of names of places <laughs> today in Joshua, lots yeah, of dividing out the land. I hope you found that totally riveting. Exhilarating. <laughs> My <laughs> but, goodness. <laughs> but it is part of the layout of the land that we find out where all these tribes end up, um, which uh, sometimes includes specific characters that tie into their past, uh, but um, it's great. And so we get a layout of the land. It kind of goes counterclockwise if you are following it on a map between like southeast, north, and west. North and west. And so, um, but we take a little pause to get this little vignette about Caleb and right. marrying off his daughter to her cousin, which is totally a little strange in the story, but hey, keep it in the family, I guess. So That's um. pretty typical back then. <laughs> and you know, actually, Othniel, or however you say his name, is probably the same guy we read about in Judges 3. So maybe that's why they're pointing it out. Um, I do like that we see, again, you know, more land being given to women yep. or them being considered in this, which was so uncommon back then. Yep. And, and we get a, we, we, we hear, and we will continue to hear with each of these tribes that they had struggled to drive out some of the people. So as much as we sort of think like, oh, there's genocide in the past, like they never really totally wipe out a lot of these people groups. Um, and, and they're going to, we hear that they're going to have trouble with the Jebusites here. We're going to hear about the Canaanites in the next group with Ephraim and Manasseh. And so, um, it's yeah. so hard. It's a little bit odd sometimes to go, all right, they conquered and drove out all these people, but they're still struggling with all these people. And, um, I think both are true. Yeah. Um, and Judah here gets a large portion of land. Remember this. This is really important because later on when we see the kingdoms divide, uh, the southern kingdom will be called the kingdom of Judah and it will it will house a couple other tribes as well. But Judah is pretty important. And even Jacob's blessing to Judah was that uh, he would be a lion. He would have a scepter and ruler staff. And of course, Jesus came from Judah's line. And so um, we see the division of land to the daughters in Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're obeying Deuteronomy. They are doing what the law has told them to do, which is always a good moment for Israel. Um, yeah, and Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph. So again, this is a picture that uh, Joseph was given firstborn rights. He was given a double portion of the inheritance in place of Reuben. Yep. We get all these allotments of all these different lands. I don't know if you want to add anything. I really don't have much to add to all these allotments, but um, Sarah, you may have more than I do. Yeah. I mean, I just want to make a couple notes because I just think it's really fascinating. So the Levites weren't given land and um, Simeon was placed right in the middle of Judah. And that was kind of to fulfill the blessing or what uh, Jacob spoke over them saying like, listen, you guys are going to be scattered. And it was because of their violence to the Amalekites. So we see that played out in the way that they don't necessarily have their own independent places to live and be. And then I just, I, yeah, I kind of hope you went through Genesis 48 and 49 and looking at some of these other things. It was really fascinating. Zebulun, uh, is told that they're going to be dwellers at sea, but they're landlocked, and yet they're on one of the biggest trade routes, and so they're working with seafarers and things like that. Um, And then Joshua is the last one to receive his inheritance, and I just think that's cool. He's It's excellent servant leadership. Yeah, he's he's rewarded for his leadership role with his own kind of city and his own land, mm-hmm. um, with the Ephraimite land. And yeah. so, uh, so there is significance to these different lands where they where they end up and the inheritance. And so we're not diving really deeply into it, but 
it is important to know and and understand. You don't have to memorize it, but it is. I hope you looked at a map to kind of see where everyone landed, and then thought about what we've learned about these different tribes over the past six yeah. books. Of and, the Bible. and there'll be there'll be moments where it really really does matter. So mm-hmm. the Judah thing, as as Sarah already put out, uh, Dan struggled to ever take out the Philistines, and then eventually yeah. Dan moves to the whole other side of the Promised Land. Like, well, and they basically like yeah give yeah. their land away in Judges. Yeah. yeah, and so it's uh it's. It's there's some land stories that are definitely brought up, uh, not all of them, but there's definitely some that are. Mm. Yeah. So they set up cities of refuge. It's one of the first things they do after the dividing dividing out the land, which is cool. They're doing what they were instructed. Yep. There's one way up north, one kind of in the middle, and then one down south in Judah. So that makes sense. That's probably good to write those down in case you accidentally kill someone someday, and uh, you got somewhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, what city can we go to again? Oh, yeah. Let's go there. Um, and then the Levites come and we're like, okay, right. So we know we're not getting land, but we still need a place to live. Don't forget about us. Yep. And they get 12 times 48 cities, which uh, is a beautiful picture of like the, the, the completeness of the 12. And four is often sort of the, the directions of north, south, east, and west. So mm-hmm. they are given cities all throughout the land yeah. symbolically and probably literally. And they're giving well. pasture land too, which is kind of cool that we see the priests also being shepherds because God is a shepherd yeah. and there's so much shepherd. And it says they rested in the land, which is, is super interesting to me because Hebrews will go out of his way to be like, well, they didn't really rest. Like Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, then God would not have spoken about a later day. So like, yes, there was rest from battles, but because of sin, there was never true rest. And, right. Um, yeah. And maybe it was a fuller rest. You know, before that they were enslaved and then they wandered the desert and then they fought. So they were resting more than they had ever rested before, right. but it was not the fullest rest that could have been. It, it wasn't that seventh day of creation right. and God rested. Yeah. There is a quasi return to Eden that this book is supposed to represent of them going from east to west back to the land yeah. that they should have been in. But um, still, still it's not, not how it complete. should be. Yeah. yeah. Which... Which should stir our our hearts and minds to think of the day that it will be complete. Yeah. So the Eastern tribes uh, start heading home. So they Mm -hmm. have participated in the thing that they agreed to, which is conquering all this land. And now they can go back to their wives and cows and everything else um, on their way back. Yeah. But they're encouraged. Don't forget. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments and cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Uh, They're going to learn this in a new way. Israel has learned to trust God sort of in times of great dependence when they were fully reliant on him for their food, for their provision, for their clothing, for everything. And now they're living in abundance. They're living in prosperity. They're living in houses they didn't build and farming, um, you know, crops that they didn't plant. And God is saying, you still have to trust me in this. You still have to lean on me in this. Yep. But on their way out of town, uh, on the way back uh, towards the Jordan, they decide to build an altar, and it does not sit well with Western tribes. I don't know if they um, thought they were violating the worship of Yahweh and what they built, or maybe the fact that they built it on their own uh, on their property and not their own property. Uh, but they are ready They've, to go to war. Yeah, they over flip this. out. They're like, "I'm ready to start a civil war." <laughs> well, luckily, a priest gets involved, and and he accuses them. He's like, "Look, this is an act of rebellion," and he brings up Achan nonetheless. He's like, "Look, Achan did this, and we killed him." And so this is not okay. This altar um, should not have been built. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Hang on. This is for Yahweh. <laughs> this so isn't a sacrifice altar. Us. This isn't some pagan altar. Like this is to remember. This is altar of witness to remember what Yahweh has done. And civil wars avoided. Hooray. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so the lesson here is ask before you assume or before you go to war. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just don't go about building many altars where maybe you weren't instructed to or who knows uh and so um, it's an excellent life application 
<laughs> True. And so Joshua, this sort of end of this book sort of uh, parallels Deuteronomy quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Joshua gets this sort of charge to Israel's leaders, this kind of end moment, end moment of his life to remember their victories. Um, but that there's a reminder, look, there's still these nations behind and don't, don't intermarry with them because, and, and there's always a because a lot with those intermarrying clauses of like, because uh, they, they might take you into worshiping their pagan gods. And so yeah. the, the, the warning against the Canaanites is not because of the race of the Canaanites, it's because of the idolatry right. that many of the Canaanites are associated with. So it wouldn't be a problem for someone to take um, um, Rahab as a wife, but it would be from some sort of pagan worshiper. To, to, to intermarry there. Yeah. Which will become a problem by the end of Book of Judges. So Yeah. So just to give you a little time understanding here, it's probably about been 25 years since they first crossed the Jordan around that amount of time that this is all wrapping up. Yep. And we see some repetition that we've seen all along. Cling to the Lord. Love the Lord your God. God has not failed at his word. Everything has come to pass that he's promised. And we're seeing it from the beginning of Abraham, from his promise to Abraham. We're seeing this all come to pass now. And they go back to Shechem. Uh, so this is actually the city that lies between the two mountains that they just had the big shouting of the blessing and curses at and, and the establishment of the or reestablishment of the covenant, sort of renewal of vows. And uh, they go back there. And and once again, they are reminded of these blessing and curses and, um, and sort of this true old man style to me. Joshua recounts these stories. It's like, I remember when my forefathers did this and um, in Exodus and Numbers and and the context of Canaan, he's recalling it all and he's trying to get them to remember like God was for us and God fought on our behalf. We have to remember this and we also have to know how we got here is because only because of God's deliverance for us. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed reading the story. I feel like much more of a personal connection to it since I've been so invested in it for the last six months. Yep. And, and he leaves them with this sort of, once again, it's sort of like the end of Deuteronomy and this sort of who, who will you, what will you choose? And, and the end of Deuteronomy says, I've set before you life and death, choose life. And, and Joshua says, choose this day whom you will mm-hmm. serve, whether you will serve Yahweh or you will serve these Amorite gods. And, um, and he says, but from my house, we will serve the Lord. And he's, he's laying it out there just like the end of Deuteronomy does. Yeah, and you know, Joshua knows they're going to disobey. Moses said it mm-hmm. um, early on, but he still gives Israel ownership in the choice to follow Yahweh. And so they are alone, really responsible for their sin and disobedience. Yep. But just like everybody other than a few people in Scripture, Joshua died. <laughs> so say, what are the three? Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus? Well, Jesus comes back from the dead. I guess he dies. But um, yeah, uh, Joshua's death and burial. Joshua dies. Um but uh, we we get sort of a reference not only to Deuteronomy and sort of this this end of the book kind of death like Moses had, but we hear about Joseph and his bones ending up here, which yeah, we remember which when so they cool. left Egypt, they took Joseph's bones with them. <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah. But not only that, we get a mention of the death of the priest too, which I think is meant to symbolically sort of connect us to Moses and Aaron as mm-hmm. the leaders. And now Joseph and Eleazar as the leaders and um, the, the sort of transition point of the leadership of Israel. Yeah, I think that for me, the end of Joshua feels so foreboding because, you know, Moses set up Joshua and was like, the, here's the guy who's going to succeed me. Joshua doesn't do that. We don't nope. know what's going to come. I mean, we do know what's going to come and it's not going to be good. So it kind of leaves it as like, wait, all of these spiritual leaders and guides have died. What's yeah. next? Yeah. If you did not know how the story continued to go, it would sort of feel like the zoom out moment where it's like, it seems like everything's okay. <laughs> yeah. Can without, we end it here? But no. like, well, like without any certainty to that. Yeah. It's like, I think they live happily ever after, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, 
Yeah. So final thoughts on Joshua? Yeah. So I think uh, two things. One is I think there's a lot of gospel connection here that we can find in the book of Joshua when we consider this idea of inheriting land. So uh, we see God fulfill his promise to Israel and giving them land, but we're not, we as believers in Christ are not just going to inherit a small plot of land, but inherit an entire kingdom will inherit the earth. And our inheritance is not dependent on our faithfulness like it was for Israel, but it is dependent on God's faithfulness to faithfulness to us through Christ. It's ours forever. And like First Peter says, it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So the story we just read in Joshua is picturing what is to come for us. And I think just a different thing that really, I felt like I was able to resolve a lot of my questions and I and concerns I had about Joshua with this idea of genocide and wiping out people. And um, while it's still, I don't feel totally at rest with it, I feel a lot more comfortable with understanding what that looked like here and how it it wasn't what I initially thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I find it interesting where Joshua chooses to slow down the storyline. And like we, we hear about these mm-hmm. conquests and all of them mm-hmm. go so fast when we get to like, and they wiped out all the southern towns and they wiped out all the nor- northern towns. But then we get at least like these two big slowdown stories. And one of them involves a Canaanite ultimately coming into the covenant people of God. And the other one involves a Jew who gets judged for his disobedience. And like the, the highlight of the story is a Canaanite and the low light of the story is this, this Israelite. And um, as much as this story is a conquering of the Canaanites, like the slow down moments of the story is also highlighting, like God still has a mission towards this Gentile yeah. pagan world to yeah. come to repentance and to know him. And, um, and, and that's, that's never off the radar. Uh, it's not like this is just going to be a book of conquering these outsiders. It's, it's, it's going to showcase and slow down for this beautiful moment for an outsider to become part of the God's covenant people, yeah. which I think is so, so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. New Testament. Matthew. We're going to start into the book of Matthew. Um, so a little bit of context. Do you want to inform us on a little bit of context in the book of Matthew? Yeah. So Matthew wrote it. He also was known as Levi. He was a tax collector who became a disciple of Jesus. So he probably wrote it, what, like 20 or 30 years after the crucifixion, so we think. And he... Yeah. Um, yeah. There's some complications sometimes around the formation of these books. Like, who, when did the preaching of the gospel begin? Well, right away. And so when did they start forming how these stories flowed and their own sort of way of telling it to different crowds and who do they influence and was Peter in Rome and was Peter preaching it one way while Matthew was amongst Jews preaching in a different way and then who started writing it down for them so there's a lot of vagueness of when things really started forming and when we get the versions that we think we have now and yeah it's about 20-30 years where it's for like the versions that we have now probably could be dated pretty close to then um, yeah. and, and including Matthew but it is a little bit difficult right and so Matthew's audience here is he's really writing to Jews he wants them to see and understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he is a fulfillment of all of their scriptures that they have uh, so you'll see that argued as we go through and I'm sure Chris and I will point it out a lot where it's, it's kind of fun to look at Matthew after we just finished reading the Torah and there's also a huge emphasis on the outsider again like we see in, in the Torah or those first six books of the Old Testament yeah 
and if you watch the gospel project on this, like Matthew is like picking up on the Torah himself, like Matthew's divided into five different sections. It's like, mm-hmm. There's a lot that um, is, is very intentional. Brilliant. These, these gospel writers are not haphazard. They are quite brilliant in their structure and their thought processes. Like there is not an unintentional word in this Bible, let alone the fact that it, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but like there is not an unintentional word that Matthew has included in this work, in this right. work. And so, yeah. And so we start with the genealogy. And speaking of not an unintentional word, right. like if you were writing a genealogy to go, this is clearly the Jewish Messiah. And with that goal in mind, you probably would not totally write a genealogy like Matthew did. Um, and, and and he does include that lineage. And he does include that that he is in line with David and all that. He, he makes sure that that's included. Right. But he also includes um, some interesting details as you go. And hopefully you picked up on this. And, and so you, you get an inclusion of Tamar which we've covered that story. It is not the prettiest story in all of scripture yeah. where um, he's, she's having a child by her father-in-law and it's, it's just brokenness. It's a, it's, it's a broken story. Uh, Rahab, who we yeah. just read about, is a Canaanite. Which we didn't learn until now. Or you, I mean, you'll read about it in other times, but Rahab, not only was she freed and like a former prostitute, but she married into the Jewish people to Israel and then is in the line of, of Jesus. Yep. And is the grandmother or the mother, I mean, of Boaz, which yep. is super cool. We're soon to learn about Ruth, who is a Moabite. So she is not an Israelite. She is a Moabite. Um, we hear about David. Which was one of those seven, gener- seven nationalities of people that they were supposed to totally get rid of. Um, we hear about uh, David, but we're also introduced to the fact that David, um, we, we hear about Uriah's wife, who David had basically Uriah killed uh, by sending him to the battlefronts. And um, then we're, we're reminded about Babylon and the fact that we were in exile, like all these inclusion of things that you would not want to highlight um, for the right. purity of the line. But at the same time, like, remember who's writing this? This is Levi. And if he was a tax collector, he is... Um, totally an outsider in the Israelite people. Like um, he, he would have been rejected by his people. They would have looked at him as a total sellout. He would have uh, abused the system and collected money for himself. He's collecting money for Rome. Um, and the fact that Jesus invites him in, in the story and calls him a disciple and commissions him to be, to, to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to the world. Like he knows what it's like to be an outsider brought in. And then he highlights these stories of brokenness and these outsiders who are brought in uh, to the story. And I think that's so intentional in his genealogy here. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat way to start. And then we get to the Christmas stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we hear about Joseph. Uh, so in Luke, we heard a little bit more about Mary, uh, but here in Matthew, which yeah, it's really told being, from being a little bit more of a, a Jewish perspective, we're going to hear about the fatherhood line more a little bit than the motherhood line. Mm-hmm. And uh, but Joseph is. Pre- presented as a faithful one like he's following god's law he wants to to honor his pregnant fiance and not shame her which is interesting because from what we just read in deuteronomy you know he had the right to have her stoned yeah he's obeying the law but he's doing it in a way that seems to be honoring yeah it's like the heart of the law Yeah. yeah which is great um and and the difficulty and i think we we lose a little bit of sort of the 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 messiness of the story because i mean you gotta imagine like you go around being like, yeah, I'm pregnant and I don't know who the father is other than God told me that he, he, he put this baby in me. Like there's no, right. How many people are going to believe her? Uh, Elizabeth certainly does. And there's a baby that jumps in her belly around that one. But, um, yeah. It, and, and I wonder how much shame and, um, dishonor was really had by Mary and Joseph early on. And maybe that's why there's no room when they come to the city because they're coming to their own town with their own relatives. And yet, 
there's nowhere for them to sleep. And I wonder mm-hmm. if there's a lot of rejection that's presented right away. Yeah. So then the first people we see pursuing to meet Jesus are non-Jews. They're they're <laughs> pagans from I can't remember where from. From the east. That's from the really, east. Really, really okay. here, which would have referenced to sort of the, the Babylonian world. They would have been yeah. uh, from way east, which um, when we covered Balaam and Balak, I mean, I, I think they are hearing can maybe, this is a guess, but maybe connecting these dots to number 24, when they hear about this new star and there is a new shift in the cosmic, or the, the, the astrology age at this point. And so there's all these things that are happening right around Jesus's birth that are part of the larger world. If people are watching the stars, they know something has shifted at this point in history. And, right. and God sends them just at this time. And maybe they're reading the stars and, and coming to town because of this trigger. Yeah. But it's also cool that God is working through these pagan magis. He sends them dreams and stuff like that. Like it, it, it sometimes goes around outside our box of understanding exactly how God works, but mm-hmm. um, he's, he's doing this work. Yeah, we learn about King Herod. Who is pretty awful. Uh, mm-hmm. Historically, he's pretty awful. Uh, and he's Ruthless. super wealthy. He's super paranoid. Um, there's, there's a lot of problems with him. His sons will have a you know, whole another set of problems as well. The uh, ones he didn't. Yeah. So the, the the Herod, yeah, the Herod here and the Herod at the end of the stories are two different Herods, and and we'll try to parse those out as best we can. But um, this Herod was super wealthy. He built all sorts of things. Uh, even the stones that we have in the temple that we have now are from this Herod. Um, so the Western Wall and those stones that are like perfectly carved and gigantic. Um, Masada. Uh, there's other things that he has built and and he was paranoid too. So he would build things like a day's journey apart so that if he ever needed to flee, he would have somewhere to stay and hole up for a night and then keep going. Like he all, so it makes sense that he gets super paranoid about this. This new King. Yeah. Yeah, That is. Yeah. Cause we're introduced to him as King Herod, which is a funny term because he was like a a pseudo King, but King Herod. And now this other King is born really in the shadow of King, one of the King's, buildings and um yeah and so it's it's so interesting and and then we get matthew start quoting some of the old testament Mm -hmm. uh, which is super interesting because like he'll say to fulfill the prophecy but if you go back and read these texts it's like what prophecy it's like it's just hosea talking about coming back or describing uh, israel coming back out of egypt it's like not a very clear prophetic text like um, sometimes we get in things like isaiah and so Mm -hmm. um, matthew does a really interesting thing that i think jesus introduced when he said um, all the law and the prophets point to me and start Matthew starts going, okay, like that opens the door to, to anything that sort of parallels in the old Testament to Jesus to, to go, this is, this is prophecy. This is always meant to point to Jesus. Right. And you know, I mean, who else was called out of Egypt? We're seeing Jesus now as the better Moses and we'll continue to see this, uh, especially through these next couple chapters we read. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely setting up a lot of parallels with Israel. I mean, right away, we hear about a king who wants to kill a bunch of children. So yeah. um, that, should, that should trigger you pretty quickly to Exodus as well. Um, we hear, we get quoted Jeremiah 31. And hear me, when when there is a quote that's pretty clear, it's totally worthwhile, particularly in Matthew, to go back and read it. Um, because the larger context that that, that quote usually comes out of um, usually informs a lot about what Matthew might be saying in the midst of that. Yeah, you know, and this is why we're doing this Bible reading plan in two years to give you time to go back and look and read and ask these questions. Yep. And so they go to Egypt, but ultimately they come back they come back uh, from Egypt. Uh, And so 
Um, it's so interesting because Joseph, like this is connections to Genesis and, and going down to Egypt and coming back to is like, Joseph's like a dreamer in the story. Like he's having all these dreams. And I think we're meant to hear about Joseph, the dreamer again. Um, and Matthew just setting these parallels up yeah. for, for, for the creation of Israel down, uh, and, and Israel going down to Egypt and Israel coming back up out of Egypt, um, just to set the stage for us. Mm-hmm. And then we get introduced to John the Baptist. Yeah. Um, we, we get quoted Isaiah 40 right away, uh, which is interesting because there's a whole group of people, and, and I feel like I've talked about it before, but this whole group of people that live down in this Dead Sea area, the, the Qumran community, the Essenes are the people. And they are priests who have rejected all the kind of corruption of the priesthood that exists in Jerusalem at the time. And they've kind of gone out to be honestly, actually really good students of the word. Um, so that's why we had the dead sea scrolls is like, they were intense about studying uh, the word, but they also said called people to repentance. So what John is doing is not uncommon for uh, folks in this community that they were saying, look, Israel's corrupt right now. We need to repent and we need to be washed. We need to be cleaned. Mm-hmm. And, and, what John is doing is connect a lot of stuff to Elijah too. And and I think Matthew's making sure we see that. So even the location that they're in is the location that Elijah got taken away in the chariots of fire at the end of his life, which if you don't know that story, we will get there. Um, but even how John is dressed is meant to be an easy trigger. So second Kings one says this, the messengers returned to the King. So these people had interacted with this guy named Elijah and they've returned to this King. And they and the King says, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us. And he said to us, go back to your King that sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, it is because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire about Beelzebub, the God of uh, Ekron. Um, Therefore you shall not come down from the bed from which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah has told this King, you, will surely die. die. And, and and the king said to these guys, what kind of man was it that came to meet you that told you these things? And these guys said back to the king, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. So the, Elijah certainly has a reputation. And, yeah. and so when we're introduced to this character out in the desert in sort of this Qumran community at the location where Elijah has been taken away and he's wearing basically like the Halloween costume of Elijah, um, <laughs> it, it, it's meant to to immediately trigger and whether that was intentional on John or whether Matthew's connecting those dots that we should automatically think of uh, Elijah here that that and Elijah's job was to call Israel who was lost at the time and then particularly the leadership was all worshiping all sorts of different gods and all this kind of stuff that that Elijah's message was no you need to repent we need to get back on the right things and so much so he even feels like he's alone and no one's repenting uh, well and this uh, idea of aloneness is really interesting thinking about John the Baptist coming after what was it 400 years of silence since yeah. Malachi no prophets, no speaking from God. It seemed like God was gone. And then you have this one lone guy in the desert saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if John the Baptist had those sort of like lonely moments that Elijah had where it's like, is there anybody else that actually I think cares? probably. I mean, well, yeah. we know he did in prison at least. Yeah, certainly. Um, and there's a lot of, he puts a big emphasis on this idea of separating things out. You know, the winnowing fork is here. Going to separate those who repent and those who don't. The axes of the trees to cut down the bad fruit. Uh, you've got to be baptized, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Lots of distinctions. Yeah, yeah. The leadership shows up and, and suddenly John's like, who warned you guys to be here? And and sort of like, he he's pretty stark with them of going like, you're a brood of vipers. And unless you're willing to actually change everything and actually bear fruit and mm-hmm. actually do the things that that is required of the law, like, 
don't go away. Like I want nothing to do with you in some ways. And he's like, judgment is coming. The, the ax will come. And he says a winnowing fork would be on the threshing floor. And I, I think that's meant to bring out some imagery. Like the threshing floor is the land uh, that, um, that David bought to build the temple upon. And so um, when the winnowing fork is on the threshing floor, I think it's such a connection to the leadership in Israel at the time. Uh, they saying, look, like you guys have screwed this up and, and it, and, and this is the moment things are about right. to change. Yeah. All right, uh, we've got a few psalms to walk through, starting with Psalm 130. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, we sang one of these songs that resonate in 2019. Um, we can cry to God from the darkest places and find that as we wait on him, we will find his steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Um, God is our hope in the midst of really painful and dire circumstances. Yeah, the timing of God might not always be our timing, right? but it's always worth it to wait. Yeah. Um. And then Psalm 131 sort of seems to be a struggle for the author, but he's like, look, I've, I've done these things. I'm, I'm working on the obedience. I've tried to humble my heart. So like, God, I'm just going to keep hoping and see what happens. Yeah. We see this pattern of humility that leads to rest, which produces hope. And I just, I was, as I was studying it or thinking about it, I thought about the opposite. What's the opposite of this? Well, you have this pattern of pride that leads to just to toil that results in despair. Which one do you want? Yeah. Humility, rest, and hope or pride, feels, toil, and despair? feels like Ecclesiastes is waiting to happen right Yeah, there. exactly. Um, and in Psalm 21, uh, this is certainly a very uh, monarchy type song that's definitely talking about the king. It's likely written by David to talk about his kingship. Um, and, and it's sort of the connecting the dots. Like, look, when the king is good, it, it goes well for Israel. And when the king is corrupt, it's bad. And um, mm-hmm. connecting the dots between the kings of Israel and the people. Yeah. And we've seen that already. You know, your leader really guides and directs the entire community of people. So, And then Psalm 119. Um, yeah. Gosh, you guys, Psalm 119 is so good. It don't is so good. don't take for granted the fact that the longest psalm in the Bible is about the Word of God, about His law. Um, it's an acrostic poem. The whole thing is with each stanza beginning with successive letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So this is to represent the complete perfection of God's Word and His law. And and in this part, David basically lists all these scenarios of like things that would go bad or go wrong, and he's still like, "But I turn to God's Word. How often do we do that? How often do we um, instead of you know react?" in a different way say okay I'm going to return to God and then I'm going to trust God that you are good and you do good no matter what the circumstances and even if I can't see it or if it's hard for me to believe now it doesn't make it less true God he is good and he does good yeah yeah David's like I'm trying to be obedient my enemies are wicked and rising around me but God don't forget about me and if it's frustrating that we chopped up some of the Psalms uh, it is what it is sometimes um, they were just so long we couldn't read them all in one sitting and sometimes we tied sections thematically to some stuff that we're reading elsewhere so um, bear with it I know some of them would be beneficial to read straight through and if you want to do that feel free um, but yeah so you, it won't be the only choppiness you'll encounter as we go yeah all right next week all right guys we're starting judges. Um, it's, it's, we are going to have to work to see the faithfulness of God in the midst of a really depraved time, but there are some bright spots. I think one of those bright spots is Deborah. And what I want to encourage you to do is you don't get the full, you get a narrative and then you get a song and the song kind of tells you more of what happens in the story. So use the song of Deborah. I think it's in Judges five to inform what you read about Deborah and the whole situation in Judges four. Yep. What about the New Testament? Um, Spend some time or just like have, you know, what we read in um, the law on your mind as we read about Jesus fasting in the desert and being tempted. Why does he argue with the specific scriptures he chooses to argue with? Yep. 
So for me, the Old Testament, yeah. Uh, watch the Bible Project on Judges. I always find those videos great. So helpful. I'm sure, uh, uh, um, I'm sure they go into it, but um, Judges includes a sort of constant cycle of of um, redemption and yet sin. So Israel keeps going down and their, their, their sinfulness and brokenness cause all sorts of problems. Eventually they cry out, God saves them and rescues them, puts them, kind of puts them back to where they were. And then there's sort of that cycle that just continues throughout the book. Um, and then as uh, we get into the new Testament, just continue to watch how Matthew is just crafting, um, and telling these, I mean, Matthew has probably a treasure trove of stories to tell about Jesus, but he's picking certain ones to tell us and structuring them in a certain way. So when Jesus goes to the desert and then Jesus goes onto a mountain to deliver uh, a, a new mm. way of how to live, like, like these should hearken back as a Jewish reader to so much of what we've covered in the Torah. And so, um, yeah, so just be on uh, aware of what he's really doing. Like, yeah, 40, uh, uh, number 40 in the desert, like, come on. Like that's so obvious. And so right. uh, trying to think through those things. So uh, just be aware and, and to hear those as a, an ancient Israelite might've heard it. Yeah. So that's it for this week. Thanks y'all. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody.